0: Wow, that was awesome. 25 singers and a few musicians thrown in there. Those uh, electric guitar swells, Trey, those were so cool, I was just saying. Randy on acoustic and Aaron doing double duty as uh, the cajon player and singing bass on that. That was, that was incredible, thank you. Uh, Andy Morris has been busy. Our communications director has uh, put all these videos together and uh, Jonathan Corzelius, our sound guy, edited the sound on that. So thank you uh, to you guys. It's great when we can't be together to continue to hear voices blended together as one as we lift our hearts to the Lord together. My hope and prayer is that wherever you may be, that today you are encouraged that your heart will be lifted to the Lord as you watch this broadcast, as you hear the word of God proclaimed and as you uh, hear the music and the songs and see the, the, the children. And uh, we do know that today is uh, Mother's Day. It's not a, a biblical holiday. It's more of a hallmark holiday. But uh, we do want to acknowledge these amazing women who have brought us into this world and have nurtured us and shaped us in indelible ways. I'm blessed to have a wonderful godly mother who I'm sure is watching this right now as she always does. So mom, love you. Thank you for being the mom you've been and Blessed to have a wife who's been an incredible mother to our three kids. Morgan, so grateful uh, for you as well on this special day. I know for a lot of you, it's a hard day. Um, some of you have lost your mother, uh, maybe a transition from this life to the next, and you you miss her every day, and you want to pick up the phone and call her, and you can't. And uh, for for those of you who are grieving, we we grieve with you. I want you to know that. Um, for those who for whatever reason that we can't understand, um, have not been allowed to become a mother and have lived with that. Uh, we grieve with you as well. We see you and uh, we as the church surround you with our prayers and our love today. And to all of you moms who are in the trenches right now, I think about our our three newborns the last couple of weeks, uh, hang in there. It's a, it's a season, it's a phase and a privilege. Uh, we know that the days are long, but the years are short. So uh, blessings on all of you moms out there today. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts about the unstoppable church, this church that will prevail against, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it because uh, the Holy Spirit has come and empowered it. And we're going to build on what we talked about last week with the Holy Spirit coming. And, um, you know, I, I planned these series months out in advance, well, well before I had heard the phrase social distancing or COVID 19 or any of that stuff. And it's been amazing to me to see how relevant and timely so many of these texts are as we walk through this book together. Today's title, I just, I shook my head as I, I read it. Uh, I'd planned this, you know, back in the fall of last year, but today's t- message is titled, All Who Believed Were Together. How ironic in this time that all who believe are not together. We are scattered, we are isolated, and we are feeling that more than ever. I heard on some Zoom calls this morning, some classes, where parents were talking about how emotions were running high in their house, and they were looking for discernment on how to handle situations uh, wisely and in the best way possible. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've grown up in church all my life, and this is by far the longest stretch that I've gone without being together with my church family. And I'm I'm feeling that in a very acute way, and I know you are too um, in this time. Yes, we are united by the Holy Spirit still as one body. Yes, you can worship wherever you are, uh, at home, on your couch. You can you know, continue to be the body of Christ. All that's true, but it's not the same, is it? We lament the fact that we cannot gather together, and we long for that day when once again we can safely uh, meet again in God's house to worship the Lord together and to hear His word proclaimed as one body. So, as we read our text for today, let's dream together about what the church may be like in the future. We know that we are being changed by this pandemic, and what kind of church will Woodmont Baptist be going forward? My hope and prayer is that uh, you are being sharpened, that you are being more and more filled with the Spirit and that I am too, and that our whole church body would be, so that as we move forward into the rest of 2020 and 2021, and into 2030 and 2040 and 2050, what kind of church will Woodmont Baptist be? Will we be led by the Spirit, like the church in Acts chapter 2, or will we be uh, continuing to just play church and pretend that we're doing something for the kingdom. There's, I think the Lord is using this time to move us forward and be a spirit-led church. So with that, I invite you to stand wherever you may be. We're in honor of God's word. If you are able to, as I read our text for today from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Last week we saw how the Holy Spirit had descended at Pentecost and how uh, Peter had stood up and given this great sermon in the temple court's Let's see what happens next now in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. So those who received his word were baptized. Sorry, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I'm usually pretty skeptical when I hear something that sounds too good to be true. I uh, immediately delete emails that have these great deals because I assume there's a catch that is not worth it in the end. uh, My family doesn't have cable in our house, and so my kids don't uh, watch a lot of commercials. Uh, So whenever they see a commercial, like at their grandparents' house or something. Inevitably, they will let me know about this amazing deal that Subway, you can buy a foot-long sub for only $5 for a limited time. Dad, we got to get down there right now. We're wasting time, man. $5 subs. And I just roll my eyes and say, it's not worth that. Don't worry about it. But when I hear Jesus tell his disciples something in the upper room On the night that he's betrayed, that Maundy Thursday, uh, as they're celebrating the Passover together, I hear him say something that sounds too good to be true. And I say, really? Jesus, do you really mean that? I mean, do you really mean what you're saying here? In, In John chapter 14, look at verse 12, what he says to his disciples. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Really, Jesus? People who believe in you will do what you did and even greater things? Do you really mean that? Jesus promised that when he returned to his Father, he said, because I'm going to the Father, the end of verse 12 there, because he's going to the Father, this is possible that people who believe in him, it's now possible because he's gone to the Father that they will do greater things than even Jesus did because he would send the Holy Spirit. God, the Spirit, would show up in a way that wasn't limited by flesh, that wasn't limited to one geographic location, but would indwell the hearts of all who believed in Christ, filling them with the presence and the power of God himself. That's a big deal. So what this means is for the disciples, they're not on their own all of a sudden. God is with them in a powerful way again. They didn't have to be these super Christians who were smarter than everybody else, who had better church growth practices than everybody else, who had better virtual choir videos, or who were doing cooler things with lights and smoke and guitars at their church. All it meant is that they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit and follow his lead for their church. Now, numbers aren't everything, okay? But, you know, pastors, we get, we get in, into numbers. We get judged by numbers a lot. And we, you know, numbers are people, so that, that does matter, I do think, at some level. But think about this. On, on the, the, the day before the Holy Spirit shows up, there's 120 total believers hanging out in the upper room, praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So Jesus, in his three-year earthly ministry, had managed to amass a following of 120. There's 120 Christians by the time that Jesus ascends back into heaven. And then within a couple of hours of the Holy Spirit showing up, look what happens in verse 41. All of a sudden, First Baptist Church, Jerusalem, blows up from 120 to over 3,000 in the matter of a few hours. Greater things than even Jesus had done were being done by the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led church. Now, most of us would love to see that kind of explosive growth in our churches, but as a wise man once said, mo' money, mo' problems, right? I remember when I was in high school, our youth group, began to see incredible growth. You were there, Lauren. You remember this well. A lot of these teenagers and their families came from a church called Woodmont and some other churches. And our youth group exploded. We doubled in size within probably a year or so. And uh, all of a sudden, all these issues surfaced. Who was dating who? Who was part of the old group? Who was part of the new group? Uh, who was part of you know this friend group? And, and what happened to this friend group? All these drama and uh, all these issues arose. And the same thing happens in Jerusalem. You got 3,000 spiritual newborns. And any parent of a newborn can tell you newborns uh, require constant attention. I I called Jeremy Arnott uh, this week, and he and his wife, Marissa, welcomed the new baby uh, into their family, along with their toddler, Grace. And I said, how you doing, man? And he said, tired, immediately. Tired. Just tired. It's hard raising babies. The disciples now have 3,000 new bundles of joy, but they also have 3,000 new problems and, and, and new shepherding responsibilities. And it's going to require an incredible organizational feat to get all 3,000 people uh, into a program of discipleship and evangelism and fellowship? How are they possibly going to uh, bring the believers together in a way that establishes a healthy church, a healthy body of believers? I've read that megachurches all over the world are having a hard time finding uh, lead pastors right now because it's hard to lead a, a megachurch. No one wants to to lead a a huge body like this, how could these disciples, these uneducated fishermen from Galilee, how could they possibly be the leaders of this huge movement? It's because, again, the Holy Spirit is with them and that changes everything. Because they aren't the ones really leading the church, the Spirit is leading the church. They're following the lead of something beyond themselves. And no church will be healthy if it follows the lead of a person instead of the lead of the spirit. So I'm going to give you five keys that happen here in this spirit-led church. All of a sudden, we see in this passage, things by God's grace and for his glory start falling into place, and it becomes a healthy, thriving church. And there's five things that we see happen here that are really keys to being a spirit-led church that's a healthy church, that's a Thriving church, that's a mature church, a church that's growing in Christ and playing its part in God's redemptive purposes for the world. First order of business, the first key is get these new guys baptized. We got to get them in the water because baptism is evidence, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's evidence of a changed, transformed life. You know, as people come to Christ and they're born again. Spiritually, they go through this powerful ritual. It's a sacrament, a means of grace in the church, a public witness that this person has died to themselves and has been raised with Christ into a whole new kind of existence. They're a new creation now, and therefore there's no condemnation for them. It's the first step in becoming part of the body of Christ in, in fellowship with the body of Christ called the church. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It's not magic, but it is a powerful outward reminder of what has happened in their lives. And it's an important marker on the journey of faith in Christ. Thank God that Jerusalem was set up like one big baptistry. There were pools all over the city that were perfect for baptism. I can imagine Peter delegating, you know, okay, Philip, uh, you go to the pool of Salome, and Bart, where's Bartholomew? Okay, uh, Bart, you get down to the uh, Hezekiah's pool. It's huge. It'll be perfect for baptisms. Where's James? James, uh, you go down to the pool of Bethesda. Uh, you guys get going. Go, go, go. Let's baptize. 3,000 people in one day. So if baptism is the first step in becoming a disciple of Christ, then what's next? Well, remember what Jesus told them in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. 19- to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Okay, that sounds like step two should be to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's exactly what happens here. Teaching is the next step. Remember, look at verse 42 here in Acts two. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Teaching comes first. They're following the playbook that Jesus gave them. And that word for devoted here really means like uh, continually to to be dedicated. That's what it means, to be constantly and continually dedicated. It wasn't that the believers attended a a one day seminar, they didn't do even a three day conference or a series of, of new Christian classes. It wasn't anything like that. It was a lifestyle of learning and commitment to the teaching of the apostles. Do you remember when Michael Jordan in 1991 shot the free throw against the Nuggets with his eyes closed? Uh, Dikembe Matumbo was a, hang on, wait, 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 wait Miles, I gotta set it up, man. Dikembe was a, a, a he, uh, he was a new rookie and he had an incredible uh, first season. He was averaging over 20 points a game and Michael had been in the league for seven years by this point. So he was kind of putting the rookie in his place as he often did. So at the end of the game, bulls are up five. And this is what happens. He, he already swished one free throw. There's only five seconds left. He says, Hey Matombo, he says, this one's for you, baby. And he closes his eyes and swishes it. There's no doubt ever it's going in. His eyes are, are closed tight and he just swishes it. How is that possible? To do that, it wasn't like this was the first time Michael Jordan had ever shot a free throw. He was early to the gym. He was last one to leave. He had shot thousands, if not a million free throws throughout his career because he was dedicated, devoted, continually studying his task, which was to be a great basketball player. If our task is to be like Christ, to be the body of Christ, we have to be continually dedicated and devoted to the teaching, to learning what Jesus taught the apostles. that's the thing is that, you know, these apostles had to divide up all their responsibilities like the baptisms. I can imagine Thomas saying, I'll take the the morning seminars uh, in the temple courts because I I wanna tell people how I put my finger in the nail-scarred hands of Christ and how I, I really began to believe and understand all that Jesus had taught us. Or I can imagine Matthew, uh, Levi, the tax collector, I can imagine Matthew saying, I'm gonna go to the marketplace, I'll teach in the marketplace because I want all these vendors and merchants to know that God can use them in his purposes for the world as well. So they divide up these teaching responsibilities and what are they teaching? They're not teaching from Paul's epistles. No one knew who Paul was at this point. They're not teaching from the gospels either because the gospels hadn't been written down. What are they teaching? They're teaching what they themselves had been taught by their rabbi, Jesus Christ. They're relaying the amazing message they heard on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They're they're relaying the teaching they heard just two months earlier in the upper room. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. They're teaching from the, the Hebrew scriptures that now make sense in light of the Messiah who has come and not eradicated or done away with the Hebrew scriptures, but fulfilled them in a holistic way. A spirit-led church is one that loves the truth that God has revealed to us through Jesus Christ and through his word. Look at Colossians uh, 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's the way that we are supposed to live the Christian life. Constantly teaching, learning, admonishing one another in the truth of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself stagnant in your faith, then I, I would encourage you to do what Peter says in 1 Peter Chapter two, verses two and three, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If, if you find yourself struggling in your Christian faith, I invite you to join one of our small groups. They're all meeting on Zoom right now. I heard our senior adult ladies class had 20 ladies in it, uh, today. You can join that on our website today. Get involved in a Bible study. The ladies are meeting on Monday nights. When was the last time you opened your Bible and marked it up and really studied God's word? If we're going to be a spirit-led church, we have to be built on the foundation of the teaching and the truth of Jesus Christ and his apostles. Then we will be a healthy spirit-led church. The third key to being a spirit-led church is fellowship. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The word for fellowship here is koinonia. You may have heard that before. We have one of our small group classes called the koinonia class, but it's a brand new word here in the New Testament. It doesn't show up until this point in Acts when the Holy Spirit has come. It's like that kind of fellowship didn't even exist. It wasn't even a thing until the Holy Spirit came and made it a thing. Koinonia means a a commonality, a sharing something uh, deep and intimate and important between believers. Whenever that word's used in scripture, it's always used to, to describe this kind of deep sharing, this kind of intimacy and unity. It's the same root that's used in verse 44 that we just read. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. That word common is koina, In Greek, it means to have things together that are shared. That's what fellowship really is, having something deep between us. Anyone who's spent time around young children can tell you this kind of sharing, this kind of deep, sacrificial sharing doesn't happen naturally. It takes a a supernatural act of the Spirit to make us want to give up in order to share with one another. There's this beautiful, joyful sharing of of what the believers have here in Acts chapter two. There's a mutual generosity that occurs when the spirit is filling these believers and compelling them to live like Christ. They're actually believing what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Kent Hughes in his commentary points out that fellowship in the early church costs something. Fellowship wasn't punching cookies in the fellowship hall that we call fellowship. Real Christian fellowship comes through this joyful, sacrificial giving. And some people never enjoy the fruits of true Christian fellowship because they're too selfish, because they're holding on too tightly, because they never learn how to give themselves away. They may come to church looking to have their own needs or their own preferences met if we're gonna be continued to bent, be bent in on ourselves like St. Augustine said is our, our sinful nature to be curved in on ourselves, then we can never have true fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know, I love the family feel of our church here. We are a family of faith. There's a rich fellowship that we enjoy here at Woodmont, but let's remember that that fellowship requires each one of us giving and sharing of our, our, our resources It means not looking to our own interests only, but also to the interests of others. It means considering others as more significant than ourselves. How can we be family to people in our church who during this time are really lonely and isolated? I think about singles uh, of all ages, widows and, and widowers. I think about young adults who are away from family and isolated right now. How can we be family in a deep and intimate way With these people who are lonely. The fourth key uh, to being a spirit-led church is is worship. You may say, where do you see that in this text? Well, look again at, at verse 42. The end of verse 42 says, they devoted themselves, again, continually devoted to the teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Scholars tell us that this breaking of bread isn't making sandwiches, that it's celebrating what Jesus did in the upper room when he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it as a symbol of what was going to happen to his own body. When these believers are breaking bread, they're remembering what Jesus did that night in the upper room. They're they're worshiping and they're praying, it says, constantly in the temple and in homes. Look at verse 46 too day by day, attending the temple together. They're they're worshiping these Hebrew scriptures knowing that they're all pointing to Jesus Christ, and they're breaking bread in their homes. Again, that's the Eucharistic meal of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted that Monday Thursday night. So we see that they're continually worshiping, giving thanks, breaking bread uh, together. These prayers they're praying uh, constantly, both Hebrew prayers and prayers that Jesus taught them, like the Lord's Prayer, that they're praying together. When the Spirit leads a church, the hearts of the believers are lifted to the Lord in worship. They begin to value worship in a, a very powerful way. Their relationship with God intensifies and it overflows in expressing their love for God in worship. A healthy Spirit-led church loves to worship. They sing, they love to pour out praise to the one for whom they now live. The fifth and final key to a spirit-led church is evangelism. Look at verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. God has a heart for those who are lost and searching. And he's he's bringing these new converts every day to this, this new young church. Have any of you attended a revival service, Trey? You're probably too young to ever have gone to, a, you've never been to a revival service. I didn't think so. I can vaguely remember going to one at the country church I grew up at in South Williamson County as a young kid. But revivals were these outward focused times where churches would you know, bring a guest speaker in or guest musician and, and they would seek to bring in those who were lost in searching. Uh, I'm not saying we go back to this revival days, but maybe we could recover something of that of having this heart to see the the harvest gathered in because the the harvest is ripe and the workers are few. You know, here in Jerusalem, it was continuous revival. Day by day, it was revival. People were coming to know the Lord every day. How often do we look around and see the world around us as as a mission field? How often are our hearts broken for those who are lost and searching and hopeless around us? How often do we pray for revival? I want to see this kind of revival happen in Nashville, in in our community and around the world. So we we see through all of these five keys how the Spirit radically and and beautifully reorients our lives both individually and as a church corporately, which leads to five essential relationships that are being transformed. Let me walk you through these real quick. The first relationship that's transformed in a spirit-led church is that believers begin to rightly relate to Christ as Lord. That's what baptism signals, signifies. But they've died to themselves. They live now for Christ. The second relationship, believers now rightly relate to the word. They, they crave that pure spiritual milk of the teaching of the apostles as revealed in the word of God. The third relationship that's transformed is that believers rightly relate to each other in koinonia, sacrificial sharing, fellowship. The fourth relationship is that believers now rightly relate to God in worship. They they can't believe how uh, unworthy and broken and frail and fallen they are, but how awesome and perfect and wonderful and glorious is God. They want to express that in worship day by day. The fifth relationship that we see here is that believers rightly relate to the world. They see the world as a mission field, not just as a playground, not somewhere that's going to hell in a handbasket, but they see it as a harvest that's ripe and ready for God to bring in those who are called to be his children. What happens in a church like that? Look at verse 43. "'Awe came upon every soul, "'and many wonders and signs were being done, through the apostles. Man, I would love to see us have awe of what God is doing. That means that we can't, we're speechless, that signs and wonders are happening that defy any earthly explanation. That can happen, and it does happen, in a Spirit-led church. You know, awe is something that we don't really talk a lot about. It's hard to understand awe in a world where we're constantly having spectacles thrown in our faces But I pray that awe would lead to revival, awe where we are blown away by what God is doing among us and we're so excited about it that we truly dive into what he's doing and become a part of it. I pray that would happen at Woodmont. Will you join me in that prayer now? Oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would bring revival in Nashville and in beyond. You would let Woodmont and and all these churches around here, God, become more and more spirit-led churches I pray that I wouldn't steer this church where I want it to go, but I would follow your lead, oh God, and that you would honor our spirit-led church by showing us signs and wonders that we can't even explain or could have imagined. I pray that you would do that because we are following your spirit's lead. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would do these things, and we pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, amen. Thanks for watching today. We're so glad you're able to join us. We're gonna have a time of worship now as a time of response. If you are lost in searching yourself and you need to, to give your life to Christ, I invite you to call the number on the screen, 297-5303. Talk to someone right now about how to surrender all that you are to Christ. If you need to be in a small group, like I said, if you need to study God's word, join on the website, send us an email, or fill out a digital connection card, reach out and see how you can be a part of what God's doing. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, I pray that you would lift your heart to the Lord in a time of response as we sing, Come, all Christians, be committed.